0: On this episode of the Nonprofit Ready Podcast, I speak with Mark Haggerty, Director of New Site Development at One Goal.
1: I think actually that the nonprofit sector benefits from smart, business-minded individuals who are looking to apply those skills to bettering a social ill.
0: Welcome to the Nonprofit Ready Podcast, conversations with accomplished professionals from across the nonprofit sector about what they do, why they do it, and how they make change happen. I'm your host, Justin Waddell, from nonprofitready.org and the Cornerstone On Demand Foundation. And today, I'm pleased to be joined by Mark Haggerty, Director of New Site Development at One Goal, a national nonprofit identifying, supporting, and training our nation's most effective teachers to lead underperforming high school students to graduate from college. One Goal currently serves students in Chicago, Houston, and New York. And it's Mark's job to identify and select new regions to enable the organization to reach its aggressive goal of moving more than 10,000 underserved students in low-income high schools onto a path to college graduation by 2016 to 2017 school year. This was a fascinating discussion with someone working in the community every day to make change happen. So without further ado, let's welcome in Mark Haggerty from One Goal. Mark. Welcome. Thanks, Justin. Nice to be here. I appreciate you asking me. Yeah, we are so excited to have you in the studio today. So maybe we can open up with just a quick discussion of One Goal and what it is you do there, and then we'll kind of dive into the history behind it. Sure. So One Goal is an
1: example of a type of nonprofit that is often referred to as a college success organization, uh, which essentially means exactly that. It's helping students Um succeed in a post-secondary landscape and there's lots of different ways that we could do that there's lots of different needs that students have one goal specifically works with primarily uh, uh, students who are growing up in urban communities often low-income families and uh, students that one goal works with are often the first in their families overwhelmingly overwhelmingly so to attempt college i think the thing that makes one goal unique Uh, without going into all the differentiators, is that we work with a a group of students who are underperforming when we first meet them. So we recruit students out of the sophomore year of high school, uh, and they are at or below their school averages in terms of their GPAs, any standardized testing that they've done to that point, which really means that they are tracking towards non-selective colleges uh, after graduation, if at all. And typically, those this particular population of students does not persist towards uh, achieving a degree after high school without some sort of intervention that helps them to prepare uh, adequately for what it is that they are going to see when they go to college. So one goal, in a nutshell, looks for the highest performing teachers already working in low-income high schools and provides them with the training, the resources, and the wherewithal uh, to teach cohorts of students that I just described Uh, The one-goal curriculum, every single day of junior year of high school, every single day of senior year in high school in an elective or an advisory period, and then that same teacher who's looping with that group of students in that third year, which is that first year of college for this cohort of students, provides uh, virtual coaching and instruction uh, driven again by curriculum uh, until the first day of their sophomore year of college. Oftentimes, uh, students will increase in selectivity, which really is jargon for how, you know, essentially um, the degree of competitiveness or rigor that they might find on a college campus. We encourage them to do that because oftentimes the higher the selectivity, actually the better the odds of a student finding resources on campus in order to be supported and to stay and persist towards graduation. And then a huge part of our work is actually uh, non-cognitive skill development. A lot of uh, the character traits work that is increasingly becoming discussed uh, in the education space. So self-awareness, proactive behaviors, um, how to essentially advocate for your own well being and success so that a program like ours doesn't need to extend all the way through your college career. But in fact, if we've done our jobs, right, we've taught you along the way, uh, essentially, uh, the training that you'll need in order to be successful on your own.
0: That's awesome. I absolutely love one goal. I love the mission. How do you play into
1: all of this? So I am currently the director of new site development. Over the last several years, uh, OneGoal, which has a nine-year head start in Chicago, which is where we were founded, uh, has begun increasingly to enter new markets around the country. So Houston was our second region. Uh, We'll be sending our first groups of students to college in Houston, actually, this year. We then opened up in New York City, which is serving its first cohorts of students this fall. Boston was city four, and we are working hard on building the infrastructure there in order to uh, be serving students next fall. And I'm currently searching out our fifth region, which actually brings me to town. And lucky enough to be here for this particular broadcast. So the role is an interesting one. I consulted with One Goal for about three years prior to coming on full-time. I was a uh, nonprofit consultant uh, for close to eight years in Chicago. And One Goal had become my biggest client. And I had worked all around the building. Uh, not just on fundraising side and uh, and sort of development, which is a lot of what my work is now, but I uh, had a hand in curriculum design, program development. And then One Goal was a small organization when I first encountered them. And so there were a lot of needs around the building that were short-term just for someone to essentially say, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to take care of this problem until we find a full-time, long-term solution to that problem or we grow to a place where it isn't a problem anymore. Uh, And so I did that probably six or seven discrete projects over the years, really came to love the organization and the people. And when this opportunity came along to lead all of our new site development work, which is essentially when we're helping to figure out which regions we should go to next, and then once we choose that region, that region gets me for a year to 18 months before we transition to local control. Um, I think the thinking around the organization was that I had seen uh, and been a part of our you know, sort of trajectory of growth, could speak to the program side uh, eloquently enough to where I could go in and talk to principals as much as I might be able to talk to a foundation. And yeah, I think of myself as sort of the chief introducer of one goal in a new region. And then uh, my job really is to build faith in the program so that once our local executive director and his or her staff is in place, I can fade to black and we can do it all over again.
0: I love it. What are you looking for in an ideal region as you travel the country, searching for one goal's next city?
1: Well, some of it, unfortunately, is driven by need. Mm-hmm. So we'll look first and foremost at the condition of largely the public schools. We do operate in some charter schools uh, as well, but we'll look at the, sort of the district landscape and understand how many schools are there where there is a critical mass of students like the ones that we exist to serve uh and then how is it that we will gain access to those groups of students so who are the grown-ups essentially that we need to know mm-hmm. and do we know any of them already and do we know the grown-ups that work with the students and we do know the, do we know the you know sort of the grown-ups or the professionals i should say in those regions who for whom this is a passion uh in terms of education reform or helping uh families to sort of break the cycle of poverty again do we have those relationships or or how can we get to them uh we Often are looking at the talent pipeline. So who are the teachers that could teach our program? Who are the staff people that could essentially be a part of our full-time staff in that particular region? And then we sort of go from there. Uh, Oftentimes we will look every year. We've we've been averaging a a new city selected every fall. We are on track again for October making the selection of our fifth region. And right now there are several finalists. Uh, It's never sort of cut and dry. I would say as we evolve the process by which one goal evaluates and then selects regions we are getting smarter about it based on experience and we are hoping to get to a place where regions start to pull us to town rather than us um, you know sort of push our way in uh, and I think we're getting there um, and you know sort of the larger answer to question two is we have some audacious goals as an organization to serve 10,000 students nationwide by 2017 this fall You know, we are on the eve right now, as you and I are talking, of a new school year. We're going to be at 6,500. So we will go deeper in the regions that we already exist. But part of the consideration on new regions is what is our capacity for growth over time so that we can continue to serve, you know, sort of larger numbers of
0: students in aggregate across the country. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Now, you mentioned so many different stakeholders that you had to take into account so many complexities that you had to address when you're looking at new regions i know that this is a similar challenge for so many of our listeners when they think about their own missions when you're approaching a new region what is your mindset to keep track of all this to rein in what could be perceived as chaos and make actionable change students
1: that's an easy one, um, and I'm not dismissing your question. It's a ve- you're exactly mm-hmm. right. That is a very complicated sort of matrix of individuals or institutions that need to be on board with us for us in order for us to proliferate. But I think about students, and this is why. So I got into this line of work in the early 2000s by accident. I was the class of '96 in college. Internet 1.0 came around right as I finished college. Mm-hmm. Couldn't have been luckier as a liberal arts. English major, small college in the Midwest. Um, I went back to New York City, which is pretty much where I grew up, and I figured that I would uh, work in book publishing for not enough money for a while and figure it out. And True story, I met someone who worked for the Barnes & Noble company and um, I had a conversation where literally this woman said Barnes & Noble is frustrated by this thing called Amazon and they think that in a matter of time, they can just put it out of business. Well, we can all see where that went, right? But I ended up getting hired by that entity at Barnes & Noble. And I was like, great, close to books, an English major. This is a lateral enough move out of publishing. Right. Fine, I'll take it. And what it really turned into was an, an amazing opportunity. I, I worked for what became barnesandnoble.com for three years. No, I did not make millions of dollars, but I made enough to follow a girl to the Bay Area um, and moved to San Francisco and got another internet job. Um, Pretty quickly met another girl who is now my wife of 13 years. Mm. She was my ride to work. Uh, And uh, it was pretty great. It was, I think of it as sort of corporate Mardi Gras. It was amazing, right? But when the bottom fell out of the internet economy in the early 2000s, no one could get a job in San Francisco. And I really wanted to stay. So I started volunteering, and I found this, uh, this place called College Track, uh, which is in East Palo Alto. At the time, it was only in East Palo Alto, which is a pocket of poverty in Silicon Valley. They are now an entity that is all around uh, a good bit of California and uh, New Orleans as well as Colorado. Uh, point of all of this is that um, it was the light bulb went off for me. I realized that this is the work that I really wanted to do. At that time, I did direct service work, so I ran an after-school center where literally the sort of daily ins and outs of 200 young people were my, that was my world at all times. And the goal was to keep these students on track to uh, matriculating in and succeeding in college. And I lived and breathed with those kids every single day. So now fast forward many years later, um, you know, I've been in this world for a long time or in 2015, you know, I, uh, I have a family of my own now. I live in Chicago and when I took this job, uh, I realized that my life did not support the direct service work. I couldn't do the hours. I couldn't do the time away from my family, that sort of thing. Um, but the reason I took the job is because I felt a responsibility to these students. And even if in this instance, in this role, I don't get to spend a whole lot of time with one goals, fellows, or we call them fellows. If I do my job right, meeting with the investment community, meeting with the philanthropic community, meeting with sort of district leadership, um, you know, sort of different talent pipelines in any particular new region and try to fit all these complex pieces together, to your point, Um, if I do my job right, then thousands more of those students get access to a program that I believe in and hopefully then are offered more opportunities as they grow into their 20s which is right around the same time that I came out of college and had all this opportunity right I'm not saying mm-hmm. it's that simple. Um, there are kids are up against it a lot but the degree is so valuable uh, in terms of opportunity for these particular young people that um, when it seems complicated and hard and confusing, uh, I, I generally think of them.
0: nice. Now, I like your entry into the nonprofit sector, and I hear about that kind of entry a lot. Mm -hmm. Uh, People develop a passion for something. They want to enter it. But sometimes there's a hurdle as to how they can channel that passion into real effective change and really build the skills that are necessary to bring value to the organizations and the missions that they seek to support. What was that process like for you?
1: It was an interesting process in terms of how to learn to be good in the nonprofit sector, and I had to make a couple of choices. Graduate school was one. I went back to graduate school, and I got an MBA in my 30s. And I mentioned earlier I was a sort of liberal arts grad. Um, Felt like, again, speaking solely to my own experience, I felt like I met in the nonprofit sector a lot of people who were long on passion, belief. And you know. I think that there are a lot of us who especially, you know, I'm impressed with millennials coming out of college. There's a lot of passion and a lot of community service work or even sort of even more intense work that's already being done around social justice. I I find it to be particularly impressive. But uh, I was not necessarily personally finding a lot of people who were seasoned leaders and managers who were teaching me great lessons about just how to be good at work. My personal feeling is that in the nonprofit or for-profit sector, About 80% of it is transferable in terms of skills and abilities. You're still going to work every day, and you still have to be a great communicator. You still have to be a good time manager. You have to figure out, essentially, what is it that is your value proposition as an organization and move it forward in a way that any business would. I personally found, in my experience, there were a lot of people who were senior in the nonprofit space because of that degree of commitment, but not necessarily the degree of training. Now, I think that's changing. And I do believe that if I'm part of this transition generation, I guess, where there was like formerly sort of a stigma around doing nonprofit work, it was a code for, I'm okay with not getting paid a lot of money and working in adverse conditions. I think that's changing dramatically. I think that there is a lot of social innovation going on. Uh, The funding community has caught up to it. I think there's some amazing stuff going on. But I would say to you know, sort of my own experience, I was always looking for opportunities to um, figure out how to do this long-term. If I had found something that mattered to me, uh, I wanted to do it in a way that was sustainable for the organization, but also would make sense to the business community, right? So that that community and I, fast forward to today, can have a very productive conversation that can be very driven by data or it can be driven by results or, out, you know, sort of cost per outcome or whatever. And I think I needed to learn to speak that language in order to then um, sit in this sort of overlapping space between for and nonprofit work, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess the only other thing that I would say on that front is that um, in terms of the cause, there's a lot of, lot of great organizations doing this work. It's always hard. You're always going to have like anyone who sort of loves entrepreneurial work would probably like nonprofit because you've got to figure out how to do a lot with a little. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're spending a lot of time evangelizing for what it is that you're doing uh, in the same way that a startup tech firm and your accelerator might feel. Um, and so you got to believe that what it is that you're doing matters locally, globally, what have you, but it ultimately matters to you. Maybe that's a cheat answer, but I truly believe that if you find the thing that matters to you that or the social ill that you wish to solve, because once you get involved with that cause, you're going to meet a lot of people who have that passion along mm-hmm. with you. Uh, and I think you're going to need it in order to sustain yourself.
0: Interesting. And how did you find your way to one goal in particular? Mm-hmm. After your MBA, you yep. did nonprofit consulting. Is that mm-hmm. correct? I did.
1: Uh, our founder and CEO is a guy named Jeff Nelson. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I first moved to Chicago in 2006, I uh, was a parent of all of six weeks at the time. And I was in grad school at night. I was parenting by day as my wife went back to work and felt pretty lost. Like, I didn't really understand what it was that I was supposed to be doing. Um, you know, College Track had been this amazing four-year ride, but... Um, I didn't know what it meant to say, I. This is, this is my career field, right? So grad school is a good place to sort of think about a lot of that stuff. Um, I started sticking my hand out around the city of Chicago and said, who does similar work and how many people will have coffee with me? Um, I talked my way to do a roundtable discussion of college support providers in Chicago. I was the only person there with no... Nothing on his name tag other than Mark. <laughs> I had no organization to I had no attachments to speak of. And I got seated randomly next to Jeff Nelson. Hmm. And um, he had heard of college track, wanted to pick my brain about what we had done there. Uh, at the time, one goal was still very much a small fledgling organization. I didn't know it at the time. I was just glad somebody said yes to coffee. Hmm. but um, we ended up being thought partners for several years, and then I started my consultancy as I finished grad school. We had always stayed in touch, and then they brought me on for the first of what became many
0: projects. Fantastic. And what opportunities do you see for one goal in the future? Are you really content with your present business model? Do you think there are going to be any iterations in the near term?
1: I would say not in the near term. Um, We are pretty adherent to the strategic plan. I mentioned earlier the goal to get to 10,000 students, even Mm -hmm. as simultaneously we sort of write our third strategic plan, which will take us... Uh, probably over the next five to seven years uh, that's being sort of worked on now for the first time I would say that we will we will maintain fidelity to the current model uh, because it's working uh, We have a critical mass of students like any organization that starts at a you know sort of small you know almost like with pilots whatever as time goes on if you think about it if I meet a student when they are 16 and we technically are hoping that they graduate by this sort of arbitrary, age of 25 right like our earliest students are only now just even reaching the point where Mm -hmm. we are really able to track their persistence to graduation it's a long trajectory so over the next several years we are going to have this critical mass of students these larger cohorts that started a few years ago are now sort of coming due Mm -hmm. so I think more than anything for one goal maintaining our relatively high right now the relatively high success rates around uh college persistence especially when viewed next to the data of what quote-unquote normally happens for students of this particular um you know subset of kids that we work with right so uh, maintaining our our outcomes even as more and more students are you know sort of filling that data set as the data Mm -hmm. set grows that's priority one there's a lot of especially things that will come through sales or you know sort of innovations that are suggested that the organization can and should think about as part of diversifying their model or branching off and doing something new um and we're not immune to that one bit i think that's a sign of a successful organization when people are asking you if you can even do more or do something differently but um as of right now i would say that one of our big internal mantras is to strengthen the core so to borrow from like Pilates or whatever, like strengthening the core of our organization so that as we continue to grow or take on sort of different business lines, in theory, uh, it, it won't hobble us at the same time. Cause mm-hmm. that would be a shame. And again, at the end of the day, it would be a shame for any organization from my perspective and from one goals. That means that we would, we would essentially be breaking our contract with these students.
0: Mark, we've learned a lot about your mission, a lot about your vision. Let's learn about your day. What do you do in a typical day, given all that you're trying to accomplish?
1: I've always been very comfortable with this notion of, like, guy behind the guy or, like, the producer. I'm not necessarily all that interested in being out in front all the time, and I'll I'll explain what I mean by that. But, like, so much of my work is related to our CEO and myself when looking at new regions or when opening up regions that we have selected Convincing others who are new to one goal of the merit of the program and the reasons why it is important for them and it behooves them to get behind it, right? So a lot of my daily work is around setting us as an organization up for success and sort of coordinating a lot of different pieces. And I have to be able to move around my organization, find those answers in a way that is not so invasive. Mm-hmm. or disruptive within my own team and mm-hmm. then either make connections with those folks externally or bring all that a lot of that information back really it breaks on two lines if if my if, there's part of my life that's about the detective work of investigating new regions for viability of one goal over time mm-hmm. once then a, a region is chosen and selected then it's about uh essentially turning the lights on in that particular region and what does that mean my job breaks down on really four pillars one is seed dollars right um, who is who's going to bring us to town to under who's going to underwrite the costs of us coming to town uh, part and parcel to that is building a small regional board of advisors not just only purely for fundraising means but people who really are interested and have a passion for this particular cause solving the social ill and also a lot of times we speak to people who love sort of entrepreneurial organizations, bringing something to town, providing a real strategic influence over the local staff. So those two areas, Uh, there's the, you know, sort of the programmatic piece. Uh, So speaking to the education community about why One Goal is something that's worth a look. And if they say, yes, I agree, that is a need that we need to sort of better address, then, okay, what does that actually look like in terms of setting up a partnership with One Goal and signing an MOU to get to a place where, you know, we're going to bring your, you know, your, our program to your campus, what have you. And then the fourth pillar is around human capital. So finding pipelines to the teachers that will teach our program, and then also finding pipelines to the staff themselves, uh, the local staff that will essentially take the baton from me when we're, when we're ready. Mm-hmm. Okay. So those are the big things that I do. A lot of my work
0: Right, those are a lot of big things. There's a lot of big things. Let's think about productivity hacks. Yep. If you're managing all of these things. How are you keeping track of it all? What's yep. the first thing you check in the morning?
1: Uh, I mean, email and I are good buddies, right? My inbox and I spend a lot of time together. So I would say there's that. Obviously, you know, managing my time in terms of the number of conversations I might have in a day externally versus what is it that I need to gather inside of one goal itself, so that I can go back out there and provide the answers that I've been has been have been requested. Spend a lot of time doing follow up. So let's just say, for an, just as an example, if my CEO and I, Jeff, if we out we're out like we're doing right now in Los Angeles, we're going to call on seven or eight different people in the course of two days. Come back. There's, you know, I'll have a, a stack of notes about the things we discussed, the things that those individuals may have agreed to follow up with us on, what we promised in return. May it be it simple as an attachment. That I send over in an email, or it's a subsequent conversation, or gathering some of this information, or really just stewardship. You know, I think a lot of my job is stewardship, making others feel comfortable with the notion that one goal is a solution that is a real value add in their community. If I already got to you, and if we have already, if we've already spoken, or someone has made this introduction, and you're willing to chat, we've entered into a conversation. Then it's making sure that conversation stays fresh. If it's with me, great. If it's me essentially setting up others, Jeff or others, for success in the organization, I, I'm pretty comfortable with that too. Uh, I, I honestly think that at the end, I'm maintaining, um, you know, a real fidelity to my, to sort of the, the my English major roots because I, I, my job is relationships, hundred percent. Like it is about the maintenance of relationships for the good of this organization that serves these kids who have a real need, mm-hmm. and so. Think about all the things you do to maintain healthy relationships. I would say that from a perspective of One Goal, that's, that's my job.
0: Awesome. All right. So if people want to learn more about
1: One Goal, where should they go? i say the best place to start would be our website, uh, which is uh, onegoalgraduation.org.
0: Okay, perfect. All right. And to close, do you have one final piece of advice that you'd offer to any aspiring nonprofit professional? Well,
1: I think as I alluded to earlier, I see the sector changing quite a bit, and I see it attracting a lot of smart talent and sort of strategically-minded individuals. Uh, What is the advice that I'm giving there? I would say that don't believe that in order to go into nonprofit, you need some separate set of business skills. I actually don't believe that. I think actually that the nonprofit sector benefits from smart, business-minded individuals who are looking to apply those skills to bettering a social ill. Uh, And I think that you will find, or any individual will find, moving into the sector, if you evaluate organizations well, there are a lot of really forward-thinking, great places to work in this sector who also operate with a sense of urgency around a, a particular cause or, uh, a, a social ill that they exist to, to write. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think you can make a very nice career. Um, uh, it will take time, but it takes time anywhere. Um, so, uh, if, you know, there's something that you truly believe, I would say expand your search to, you know, to include, you know, smart, forward thinking organizations that are, uh, that are doing this good work.
0: Awesome. So as a reminder, next time you're on Indeed or Monster, be sure to select the box for smart forward-thinking organizations. <laughs> Good one, Justin. Thanks, Mark. All right. Well, that wraps up this week's Nonprofit Ready Podcast. Uh, thank you to everyone for tuning in. And thank you to Mark Haggerty for a very enlightening discussion on just what it is you do at One Goal and where you see this sector going. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. back in the studio. What an amazing discussion with Mark Haggerty. Great insight into a growing organization and into the career of someone who really has transitioned from the corporate to the nonprofit sector. On the next episode of the Nonprofit Ready Podcast, I'll be joined by Kevin Morgan, CEO at Pro Literacy. So be sure to subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. And while you're there, be sure to leave a rating and review. There are many other ways to connect with us on Twitter at CSOD Foundation, Facebook.com forward slash CSOD Foundation, or send us an email at info@nonprofitready.org. If you haven't done so already, be sure to sign up for nonprofitready.org, which includes all of our previous podcast interviews, some amazing webinars and more than 300 online learning resources covering the most crucial job functions in the nonprofit sector, all 100% free. The Nonprofit Ready Podcast is a production of the Cornerstone On Demand Foundation. I want to thank our editorial director, Jeanette Lamb, our sound producer, Trung Ngo, our executive producer, Alec Green, and most importantly, you, for listening and helping us to build the nonprofit-ready community. Learn more about our free professional development resources at nonprofitready.org and all the capacity building services of the Cornerstone On Demand Foundation at csodfoundation.org. That's all for this time. Have a great day.